<laughs> All right, guys. Practical theology. Um, so let's jump in here uh, together. So I've um, I put together some some things to help us kind of set the stage for what we're going to look at when we talk about the law. So um, again, uh, if we were here last week, we'd have Kyle or Neil uh, would have talked about this in a lot more detail. Um, but a couple of framework uh, catechism answers and questions. Um, justification um, is an act of God's free grace where our sins are pardoned pardon, and he accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So that's the point where you are justified in God's eyes because God sees Christ instead of you in relation to your sin. So justification. Um, sanctification, <clears throat> and we're talking about this because... Um, as, as leaders in the church, we need to understand how God uh, works in the lives of people and how God brings people to himself and calls people to himself and redeems sinners so that we can, as leaders in the church, so that we can be a part of what God is doing um, and not a hindrance to it. So it's very important that we understand how God normally works, not, not always the, exactly the same way, but we want to be uh, working as a part of God's plan and not in opposition to it. So justification, an act of God. Sanctification, also an act of God, a work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So that is, that is our response, uh, God's work in our heart, and it, result, it kind of feels like, it actually practically it, it seems like it's our response, although it's not our response, it's God working in us, um, but it's, it changes the way we behave. Um, and there's words like sin in here. So we're going to think about that for a second. Now, this is the, the sentence, uh, the answer that I want to unpack. And those of you who were in a Sunday school class six months ago uh, in the other, with the larger group, we unpack this together. And I want to do it here again, except think about it in the context of, of leaders in the churches instead of congregation members. So it's an important question. Where does justification and sanctification differ? So it's a long answer, and then we're gonna, I've got it here, but we're going to go through it sentence by sentence to understand it. Okay, so first, and I've sprinkled in some scripture for us to look up. You can join with me in your Bibles as we go, but I threw it up here, so it's easy, and you don't have to if you want to avoid the, if you want to stay, um, uh, avoid uh, moving around. So, all right, so the question is, how did justification and sanctification differ? So beginning there, all those sanctification be inseparably joined with justification. Okay, so um, God saves sinners. You're justified in God's sight by Christ's righteousness imputed to you. And then the necessary fruit, what happens after that, is our hearts are changed. Um, and James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. So what happens is then not only do our affections, inward uh, desires, but what we actually do changes. And, and then the fruit of that is good works. That's where good works come from. So uh, a good scripture reverence on that is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I'll read it here <clears throat> um, for us. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. An important thing to consider here as we think about leadership in the church, these words all sound pretty bad, and you can all probably check the box, say, nope, 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 don't have that one. Um, But the thing to consider is you're capable in the darkness of your heart of anything, and if not for the grace of God, um, you, I, Jim, Kyle, Neil, any one of you would be in this same category. Um, Reviler, thief, drunkard, swindler. Um, In our sin, we are there. And as Christians and as men in the church, we've got to be serious about putting these things uh, to death. First in our hearts, um, Steve May in our Lead with Character trip always talks about the role of biblically strong men are to build things up and tear things down. That's what we do day after day, build things up and tear things down. So we want to build up the things of God and righteousness, and we want to tear down the strongholds of evil first in our heart and then in the hearts of our people. Um, Okay, the next. Yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. Okay, so justification is that place where Christ's righteousness becomes ours. Romans 4 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So unfavored, uh, undeserved merit, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So justification, that's, that's clear. And then Psalm 32, I love this verse. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no uh, deceit. We often explain to the young children, whatever, middle-aged children that are... Um, that are maybe coming to interview for communicant membership in the church. And uh, one child years ago uh, explained what is sin, what does Christ work in your life. Um, and like, well, my dad told me that it's like Christ is a, a white robe that God puts over me. And so instead of my dirty heart, God looks down and he sees Christ who's completely covering me um, instead of what's underneath, which is my sinful heart. Beautiful, um, simplistic way of visualizing uh, the work of Christ. Okay, next sentence. So in sanctification, now it said God in justification, so pull back God still in sanctification of his spirit infuseth grace and enableth to the exercise thereof. So you've got to get past the, you know, the, the language. Some of you like it. Some of you, it's a hindrance. To me, I'd like to reword it, but it is what it is. Um, so what does that mean? God in sanctification, what he infuses grace into our hearts to enable us to do something, to exercise, to work it out. Um, Ezekiel chapter 36 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. <clears throat> in Philippians chapter 2, I love this verse, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah. Ezekiel 36. So why, this is, this is just a, should be an enormously comforting um, doctrine to know that God in his kindness so, so overwhelmingly blesses us that he saves us 
And then, although we're, because of original sin, we are, um, we have only evil thoughts continually. Uh, before God sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And over time, uh, not immediately, but over time, uh, God changes that orientation more and more away from evil and sin and toward him. He causes us not just to do the right thing, but to want to do the right thing. And that's an enormous blessing. But it's also, as a leader in the church, it's important to understand how God works in the congregation as well. So now... As a leader in the church, or a potential leader in your, the church, you're shifting from understanding what God's doing to you to understand what God's doing to you and your heart, but also those um, under our care, the people in the congregation. Okay, So that'll be important in just a minute when we get to how we think about this. Okay, so justification in the former. So in the former is justification. In the former, justification, sin is pardoned. Okay, straightforward. That's... Romans chapter 3, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, um, sin is pardoned, passed over our former sins. Now, get to sanctification. In the other, so in the other down there, uh, pointing back, the other is referring to sanctification. It, it is sin. In the other, sanctification, sin is subdued. So one is sin is pardoned, the other sin is subdued. Um, Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, um, but under grace. So sin is pardoned in justification, sin is subdued in sanctification. Okay, now <clears throat> now we're back to justification. This, this answer is ping-ponging, justification, sanctification. Uh, the one, we're talking about justification now, doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God. So as a Christian, the act of justification is what it is. Okay? And it's equal in all in its effectiveness at, of, at freeing us from the revenging wrath of God. And it is perfect, such that none will ever fall into condemnation. All uh, John 6 speaks of um, Christ's claim on the sinner and the fact that all that are called will will be finally glorified um romans 8 who shall bring a charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who's at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us Uh, christ is our advocate to god okay romans chapter 8 so now the other ping pong back to sanctification the other, now here's where we go, we start thinking about, as a leader in the church, we think about our hearts and the hearts of our people. The other is neither equal in all. Okay? Now, I think we have examples of that, you know, in just if we pay attention. Um, however, uh, Hebrews 5 uh, reminds us, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Uh, we have baby Christians in the faith, some, of, some, of, some adult big men and very mature women are babies in the faith, um, and they need to be taught the basic principles of the oracles of God. Um, Hebrews 5 here says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good 
um, from evil. Okay, so again, continuing, now we stop ping pong and we're adding, we're adding clarity to sanctification. So it's not equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any. So justification is perfect. Sanctification in this life is not perfect in, in any. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So one of the most important uh, leadership qualities of um, an officer in the church is that acknowledgement that we're all capable of the worst darkness of our heart um, and that humility and understanding uh, that we are just as broken as the people we're trying to help um, and just in need of Christ as the people we're trying to help humility um, as a leader um, but that doesn't mean we should despair and give up and stop driving to put sin to death in our hearts and it starts uh, so go the leader as the leaders of the church go. That's the way the church is going to go. Um, so if we, as men in the church, aren't serious about the law, Ten Commandments, what God calls us to do, and living life to God's glory, then we shouldn't be surprised if no one else is either. Um, so the last sentence here, again, sanctification. Three clarifications on sanctification. First, not equal in all, not perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. If you're not growing up. Uh, as we go, then something's not right. Um, okay, so 2 Corinthians 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Um, and then Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and Neil's favorite verse, press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God um, in Christ Jesus. And then it's always comforting to see uh, Hebrews chapter 12 when we think about the body of believers, both present in our church and throughout uh, before us and coming after us, the cloud of witnesses. Uh, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising that shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so now that's the foundation. That's how God works to save sinners. And that's how we should expect God to work in our lives and in the lives of our people. Um, now, what do we do with that? So we talked a lot about putting sin to death. Um, and so we need to understand what sin is. Um, shorter catechism is really easy as a little children. Hopefully your children know this. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I love that answer. Want means lack of. Want means needing. Um, so sin is any, not, any lack of fully conforming to, fully doing God's law positively, or transgressing it, going against it. And as we, uh, as we teach through, um, in our theology Sunday school class, as we teach through the Ten Commandments, uh, we spend 
one week usually on one or two commandments and really and just as the catechism does uh, lean into understanding what each commandment requires and what it prohibits what it requires that we do uh, to fully conform and what it uh, prohibits that we do to keep from breaking it both of those things um, are sin not fully conforming or not fully or transgressing Um, so law I've I've underlined law because now if we're going to be serious and we're going to be men in the church who are leading the church, we're going to have to be serious about understanding um, how to put sin to death. And sin is a transgression or a lack of conforming to law. So we've got to understand what law is, right? Um, And that's where we're going to go today, practical theology. So we're in Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 19. We're going to go to 20 today, too. Um, and the outline said we're going to go all the way to 24, read all the way to 24. We're going to hit that a little bit more in our class on worship and discipleship. Um, and, um, we'll probably hit marriage, we'll hit marriage and divorce quickly. Um, but that's not a a topic that's going to take very long. Um, so I want to step through this here. We've got some good time left. So 19.1, uh, I put these on the slide so we could, we could um, avoid having to look through everything. But we're in, if you're in your training manual or if you have a copy of the Westminster Confession, we're in obviously chapter 19 and session 4. I'm going to pull this up and read a couple quotes from David um, as we go through David Hall. Um, so 19.1, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So this is, uh, this is pre-fall, God's covenant of works with Adam. The law existed before the Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, God gave us some more specifics as we, as we go on. Um, but the law and the expectation of adherence to it uh, was something that existed at creation, in the beginning, covenant of works. Um, next next uh, section, section two This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables. The first being our duty towards God, the second our duty toward man. Um, Does anybody know the first four commandments and and is willing to tell us? Good. Excellent. Um, Paul Molnar, uh, on our Lead with Character trips, those of you who, are, who have been on those before, um, asks a group of 50 men and boys, um, if you know the Ten Commandments, and, you know, some of us know the Ten Commandments well, but when put on the spot, it's not ingrained in our heart enough to be able to say it. Um, Dave, good job. Thank you for, for, as Steve would say, if you were a young lad, he would say, Thank you for taking a risk for a purpose, and we would give you a little badge. But since you're, <laughs> since we're not only with character, we'll just say, good job, thanks for, thanks for stepping up. So usually he does that to highlight that adult Christian men often don't think about the Ten Commandments very much. It's not serious business uh, to Christian men. And as leaders in the church, we want to be serious and, and be serious, seriously considering 
the Ten Commandments as the moral law uh, in our hearts and in the hearts of the people that were called the shepherds. So the first four, um, as, as Dave shared with us there so greatly, I won't ask you to do the last, the last uh, six, but here they are. Honor your father and mother, uh, shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bears false witness, and shall not covet. Now those of you who have children in classical conversations, uh, if you don't know the Ten Commandments by heart, the little jingle that they sing makes it so much easier to remember. Um, and I will, I'll, uh, maybe I'll teach it to David, and David can sing it for us uh, <laughs> next week. Um, but anyway, be serious about the Ten Commandments. So there they are. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second in our principles. Okay, so I want to hit on a couple more things that are important to understand as we think about leadership in the church. Um, uh, and the three different types of law. So we have moral law, which get, it's given to us in the Ten Commandments. And then we have ceremonial and judicial um, law. So let's look at that for a second. Um, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church underage ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions for moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated <clears throat> under the New Testament. Um, does anybody know what abrogated means? What's that? Done away with. Done away with. That's right. So chapter session four, um, David Hall says, the ceremonial laws are all those worship and ritual codes, including aspects of feast, kosher laws, cleansing laws, which were designed to point to the sacrifice of Christ. Once Christ fulfilled those on the cross... There's no additional need to continue those aspects which were designed for Israel as an infant church, the church under age. Okay, so if you believe in covenant theology, you believe that everything from creation is pointing to Christ and everything after, after Christ is pointing back to Christ. So as a church, um, what we do in our, in our um, um, it's constraints of time and space and place. Um, how the church behaves um, is has been different throughout the ages because of the just the, the 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 logistics and the dynamics of pointing to Christ prior to and back to Christ post. Um, so the Old Testament ceremonial laws were pointing to Christ. Once Christ has fulfilled those laws, there's no need to continue in that practice. Um, so that's clear, I think, in the, in the Westminster uh, writers, um, uh, in our fathers who came before us, uh, and understanding that those laws are now that Christ has fulfilled them, done away with. Um, okay, so then the third type, and this is important because um, some will get uh, confused on this point, and that's the next paragraph on page 115 in session four. Actually, I don't know that it's 115. Some of us have different editions, um, but it's paragraph four under practical theology. Um, to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws. So from Exodus 20, you go to Exodus 21, 22, and 23, and those are basically, um, Hall says here in his books, so they're case laws based on the Ten Commandments. You see it in Exodus 21. Through 23, civil statutes revealed by God for the post-Mosaic nation of Israel. They were designed only for strict application in the nation-state of Israel as God prepared them for the coming of the Messiah. Much like ceremonial laws, um, but you may have heard of somebody with a theonomic or a, or a theonomy position. Um, 
And some have argued today that, that more, more than just, now here it says, not obliging any other, now further than, not further than the general equity thereof may require. So there's good principles that our government is based upon. Uh, I mean, anybody that knows the history of, of America, uh, and it's so appropriate to talk about this uh, even this weekend, um, that the understanding of the depravity of man and the balance of power and the importance of, <clears throat> the importance of acknowledgement of, of a creator, honestly, um, in the, in the, and, and even the Presbyterian nature, I would even argue, of the U.S. and how it was founded, uh, there's good principles to base our government upon. And later in the Confession, in chapter 21 or 22, we talk about the civil magistrate and understand that governments are put in place by God and that authority we should respect because that authority is from God just the same way that over the civil magistrate, just the same way that God uh, uh, designates his authority in the church to the session, to the elders of the church. Um, However, that doesn't mean that we should apply today in our governments um, or demand in our governments uh, the execution of penalties as described in Exodus 21 through 23. However, some disagree, and they would take a theonomic position, uh, not the intent of the, of the writers of the Westminster, Westminster divines, and certainly not the position of, of this church. <clears throat> Make sense? Good. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not putting everybody to sleep. Um, okay, so there's a lot to cover here, guys. So I'm sorry I'm pounding, but... Um, so 19.5. So what do, what do we do with this law? So we've got the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. And there's kind of two camps that people go in from this point. Say, okay, ceremonial, done. Uh, not, that doesn't... That abrogated... Um, um, judicial law, that's, that was just for the nation state of Israel. We don't, that doesn't apply. Um, now, moral law. Okay, so, oh, we're under grace, so it doesn't matter. Um, so, it, like, at least four of the Ten Commandments are abrogated too. I like that word, right? So, um, no, that's not true. So, the moral law, and here it's in section 5 of chapter 19, the moral law forever binds all as well, justified persons as others. That means whether or not Christ is covering you as a Christian or not, you are bound to the moral law, to the obedience of it, and not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve but strengthen this obligation. So there'll be some that you'll encounter, maybe in this church, who will, uh, at, who will argue um, and there's all there, there's, we'll talk about it as we go forward, but anti-law, you'll hear the word antinomian. Okay. Some will take that position. Um, and then you see, often hear that contrasted with legalism. It's, it's over, way too simplistic. Um, and we'll try to unpack that a little bit, but the right answer is we are sinners and we, and God has set a bar that's high and only, and we can't meet it but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And, it, and God covers us with Christ, and he also promises us to enable us to get better. So it, it really is. The, the, the image of pressing onto the upper call of God in Christ Jesus and running with endurance the race set before us, that's really what it is, right? It is a, it is, life is 
uh, a marathon of putting to death sin in your life. And as leaders in the church, you've got to take that seriously. You've got to grab it. And you can't, you can't compromise in that area. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that... Uh, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have major problems. It doesn't mean you're not going to argue with your wife. It doesn't mean that you're, you're not going to be selfish and your wife's going to tell you that you're a brute. I mean, you, probably that'll happen more. If, if you guys go, if, you, if God impresses on your heart to, to move into church leadership, where do you think, if, somebody wants to, if, if Satan wants to attack and tear down the church, where do you think he comes he comes for the elders of the church and the pastors of the church and the deacons of the church first. And where do you think, what's the biggest gut punch you can take as a husband? Family life. Family life and um, uh, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, feeling disrespected by our wives. Those of, you who are, those, of you, those of you who are married, if you feel disrespected by your wife, the quick, usual reaction is a quick and sinful um, defensiveness that turns into outward sin. Satan's going to attack the elders in the church by attacking his family and attacking his marriage first, and that's how you get to a man and start tearing him down. Which means we shouldn't be surprised... Um, when attacks come, uh, if you become, if you are uh, an, a leader in the church, in fact, you should expect it. And when those things happen, you should say, stop. Satan is attacking the church because Satan is attacking our marriage. And this is more, about, this, this is more than about you and me in this, in this moment. This is about 500 people or more as we go forward. Take, take that seriously tearing down the strongholds of evil is our daily job as men and as leaders in the church it becomes even more critical um okay so what's the point then other than what i said uh of the moral law well there's a lot of words here it's basically says that it gives us <clears throat> it gives us uh it gives us an appreciation for what Christ has done for us helps us to understand our need for Christ. If we don't understand the requirement and, and how hard it is to keep it, then we don't value Christ nearly as much. So that's one reason. The other reason is, you know, God gave us a path. We think about Pilgrim's Progress. If we think about many illustrations in our mind, God gave us a path and rails uh, that lead to life. Um, and these, these, the moral law is the way God intended things to be. And we shouldn't be surprised uh, if we look around the world <clears throat> when things go sideways, it's because people are off the path outside the rails that lead to life. Um, so I'll let you read there uh, that question to, that answer to uh, question 97 on your own. Um, okay, so <clears throat> 19, section 7. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. So here, you know, the confession shifts in this, in this section to some really, really, I mean, it says sweet. It's sweet, sweet language. 
Um, there's, a, there's a marriage of, of truth and love. You know, we, all, we always want to think about things as, as God. Uh, God is all about truth and law, and he's harsh and judgmental, right? Um, how many of you heard that before? Um, I don't want to be a part of a judgmental church. Um, God is not about judgment. God is about love, acceptance. Um, everything's okay. Uh, and the answer to that is, and we, our hearts want to snap one way or the other, right? Especially if we're the ones that are not uh, outside the rails. It's really easy to say God is all about judgment, um, but if we are pushing the boundaries of what God would require, we just want to be in the God is all about love camp. And the answer is God is both. Um, and this is what this language is saying. The, it's not contrary to the grace of the gospel. You can't out God's ability, Christ's ability to um, cover that. You can't out Christ's perfect righteousness. not possible, okay? But, the law that doesn't, isn't contrary to that, it sweetly complies with us. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires us to do. Psalm of David, 19. Um, the first six verses are beautiful, starting in verse 7. The law, uh, think about this for a second. Think about you as a um, rewind to six years old and your parents are telling you what you have to do and you don't want to do that, right? There's no difference between you in your heart at six and your heart now looking to God your father at, you know, most of us are in our, in our mid-30s, right? 36, <laughs> just kidding. Um, uh, 46, 56, 66, whatever it is, your heart is exactly the same place, okay? So does your heart say this? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired. These, now remember, he's talking about rules. Precepts, rules, laws, rails, these things are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. This is a man who knew well sin and the effects of sin and embraced it often, right? Um, but cherishes the law of God more than anything, and in language that's so beautiful to, 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 to read here and to, and to let sink into your heart. Um, Jim walked out, and I'm really sad, because I have Chesterton's quote. Um, <clears throat> uh, but it's a great thing to think about. When you think about the law, don't think about, think about, don't think about it as a burden. Christ didn't think about it that way. The language of, our, of, the, of the confession doesn't think about it that way. Um, Chesterton said, the more I considered the, the rule, the order that Christianity brings, the chief aim was to let, within these rails, to let the good things run wild. And that's a beautiful way to think about it. Tear down the strongholds of evil and build up the righteousness and the beauty uh, and the truth of God and let those things, positive feedback, blow up, right? That's what you want. 
Um, great quote by Chesterton. Um, okay, now, from 19, okay, from 19, chapter 19 to chapter 20, uh, we pivot from the law um, to liberty. Um, now, this has particular, particularly important uh, application as we think about being a leader in the church. Um, still session four, but it's chapter 20 of the confession. Um, David Hall says, first sentence here, that Christian liberty is, this chapter, chapter 20, uh, is the hallmark of our standards. Um, and there's good reason for that. But first, let's understand what liberty is. So liberty, which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel, consists in their first in their freedom from the guilt of sin. And Calvin wrote some things I'm going to highlight in a minute that's going to help us understand that a little bit better. The condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. So first off, we're freed from an obligation to keep the law as it would result in our righteousness in God's eyes. Okay, we're not, um, we, because of what Christ has purchased for us, we have liberty there under the gospel. We don't have the guilt of sin because Christ covered it. Um, Christians further enlarge in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. So we're free from the ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ. And in greater boldness can access the throne of grace and the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling in our hearts to enable us to, to press on. Okay, so there's liberty in that. That's a lot of words. I'm going to think about that in a little different way in a second. Um, that's where liberty starts. <clears throat> now, again, rewinding. The reason I started with this talk about justification and sanctification is to, is to remind us how God works in, the heart, in your heart and the hearts of believers. Um, section two, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship so that to believe such doctrine or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also so god works in our hearts through the means he's given us through uh, the weekly rhythm of worship and the preaching of the word uh, god's revealed word to us uh, he convicts us in our hearts, which is our conscience, and God is Lord of that conscience. So men do not have the right to make up other things, uh, and there's some nuance here that we, we should think about and talk about, which we will, um, uh, that's contrary to God's word, or even goes beyond it. So let's Let's think about that for a second. Um, now, before we do that, we've got to set some boundaries, right? So, um, Christian liberty, we have the liberty to, uh, and, and Calvin says, Calvin says we have the, the, the biggest liberty we have is we have the liberty to obey. Liberty to obey, liberty to keep God's law without it being a requirement, okay? So, you can keep God's law, you have the liberty to keep God's law imperfectly, you don't have to keep it perfectly to be righteous in God's eyes because Christ did that for you. So liberty, you have the liberty to obey. Okay? Second section, God alone is Lord of the conscience. How do you know 
what you should do because the Holy Spirit is going to convict you in your heart if you're, if you're listening and sitting under the word of God preached. Now, third, liberty is not license, okay? So a lot of people will use the, use the, the thought of the, the section 2 of the Confession in chapter 20 to say, Christian liberty, I can do whatever I want, doesn't matter. I've got Christian liberty. You can't judge me. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. Um, I have Christian liberty. They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin, cherish any lust, they destroy the end of Christian liberty because the first liberty we have is to obey imperfectly. Okay, Being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Um, so liberty is not license. Um, a balance. Okay, so section four, um, it talks about the marriage between um, this, it talks about the marriage between this um, liberty to obey, uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and a liberty is not license. Unpacks that a little bit more there and talks about how those who do take liberty as a license are subject to censure in the church and even the civil magistrate which God put in place if um, your liberty violates God's law, right? So um, some would say, <clears throat> some would say uh, Christian liberty, um, I can therefore do whatever I want regardless of the, of the civil law of the land. And um, Romans 13 reminds us that we are, that authorities, whether the church or not, civil authorities are put in place by God and we should, uh, there's time for, for pushing back, and we've discussed that a lot in recent years and months, um, but the general general posture should be to obey the law, the civil laws of our land, because they're there because God allowed them to be there. Okay, um, so liberty isn't applies to the civil magistrate as well, or liberty with liberty instead of license. Um, okay, so we often talk about um, what it means where a get to church, not a have to church. Um, so that's what we say to the congregation. We need to think about this a lot more as leaders in the church. Um, but these are some, this, is, this kind of thinking is the foundation for um, some of the early paragraphs in that Lord's Supper position paper, not Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day position paper that Kyle emailed out. By the way, Kyle emailed out a whole bunch of papers that we're going to hit over the next few weeks. Did everybody get those? It was two emails. One went into spam probably. And there was, did you have a question? So most of these papers, and maybe we can make sure we have them all printed off, most of these already are in the library. Um, if, you walk, if you walk in the door and walk right back against the wall, Michael Ann used to have a shelf with all those there. I can't guarantee they are, but we can double check. And, okay. A lot of them are on the church website. The, the diaconate, some of the, we have public position papers and internal ones. Public ones are on the website, so. Um, hasn't been written yet I, we created the outline for uh, I created the outline for this class and 
in creating it, I said, we needed a Lord's Supper paper. And we got that one done. I said, we need a baptism one too. Um, And basically it's Neil's, uh, the the, um, pre-sermon he does every time he does a baptism, it's that transcribed and cleaned up. We just haven't done it yet. So uh, coming someday, I hope, soon. Okay, so principles, principles of a get-to church. How does, how does what we just talked about over the last 45 minutes shape the flavor of the ministry here at Christ Covenant Church? Um, and as a leader in the church, how, uh, what's important for you to think about, <clears throat> um, certainly as an elder, but it also applies as a deacon as well. Principle number one, obedience to God's law is important. I've made that point from five or six different angles this morning. I hope you understand um, that obedience to God's Moral law is important. Um, this is a section out of the Lord's Supper, Lord's, Lord's Day, sorry, Lord's Day paper. The church cannot afford to be lackadaisical regarding the Ten Commandments. Jesus warns against relaxing or breaking any of these commandments. Matthew chapter 5 also talks a lot about that in, in Titus chapter 2 there. Um, so obedience to God's law is important. Um, that's the foundation. Um, number two... Um, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 5, um, as elders in the church, um, uh, God has given us authority. Uh, as deacons in the church, there's also some level of authority as well. Um, it's, a, it's different, um, but practically speaking, the members of the congregation will look to the elders and the deacons as, and the pastors as leaders in the church. And they know that they are to obey their leaders. But... The elders of the church, the leaders of the church, are not the Lord of their conscience. Okay? Um, um, And this is important to understand. I want to sit here for a second because this this principle I wrote in in a Sunday school class I did a few weeks, months ago, to the congregation. But as potential leaders in the church... Our people need to know that we aren't the Lord of their conscience, but we need to know, if those of you who, 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 who go forward as an as a officer in the church, that we are not the Lord of people's consciences. And that's, that takes a lot of wisdom to understand what it means to be declarative, to declare the truth and the Word of God to people which sometimes comes with admonishment and rebuke and correction and direction without being Lord of the conscience. So if God's given you authority in the church, you kind of like, if you're honest, a sinful way that that can manifest itself, you kind of like being the guy with the answer. And you're going to be tempted. Satan will tempt If you're an elder in the church and even a deacon, Satan's going to tempt you by causing you to desire to give your opinion on more things than anybody should care about. And you've got to resist that temptation. Okay? And people are going to ask you what they should do. And you have the power, because God gave it to you, to bind people's consciences. And that is, that I can't stress how serious it is and how much pain I have seen in the church when elders don't will that responsibility fearfully you have the power to bind people's consciences okay so you can (laughs) you can you can use that power to cause serious hurt to people 
You can call that, you can use that power to, you can use that power to just, you know, uh, give useless opinions that people take more seriously because you're an elder. And that's just silly. But you can also use that power um, to hurt people. Um, and it's very confusing when an elder or a leader in the church tells you something that you must do. It's very confusing to say for a, a sheep, a congregation member, or child, or anybody, uh, to say, is this, is what you just told me from the Lord, is this what God is commanding me to do, and you're just the mouthpiece of God, or are you telling me to do something else? The assumption is, the elder knows what the elder's doing, and if the elder's saying something and binding your conscience, then that is afflicting them with a duty to obey. Don't be very, very careful. Um, be very, very careful with that. I'll, I'll, I can maybe give you a couple examples in a minute. Um, but the words here, I, in, the, in the paper, in the Lord's Day paper, um, Neil used the word, the power uh, of the elders is ministerial and declarative. So that comes from the PCA, Book of Church Order, preliminary principles. The, the form of government in the ARP doesn't have preliminary principles. They have a section on authority and where authority comes from, God. Um, so what ministerial and declarative means uh, ministerial uh, means in the role, it's, it's effect, actually means in the role of a minister. Um, how it's used in this context is honestly a little confusing to me. Declarative makes more sense. Our power is in declaring the truth that God's already given his people. And that's what we, we, we can bind consciences in, in the Lord. So it says, all church power, whether exercised by the body in general or by representation, is only ministerial and declarative. Since the Holy Scriptures are the only rule of faith and practice, no church judiciary may make laws to bind the conscience outside of God's Word. All church courts may err through human frailty, yet it rests on them to uphold the laws of Scripture, though this obligation be lodged with fallible men. So the session and the deacons, the session is made up of a bunch of fallible men, and God gives us principles called plurality of these fallible men, that if all of these fallen men who are, who are broken, but are all uh, given a task by God to fulfill. Um, <clears throat> together, if they're all pointing to, the, to God's word as the standard, then hopefully, and I've seen it in practice for um, how many ever years? 11 years now as an elder, I've seen it in practice that uh, at session level and presbytery level, the plurality of men covers the failings of individuals. As a group collective, the, the whole is much better. It works out better than the sum of the parts, and that's just true. And God gives us that principle. So I can have a harebrained idea that's you know, jaded my, by my sinful temptation in, in one area of my life, pride, whatever it may be, and Jim and Sonny and Kyle and Rick <clears throat> can check that. And then what we actually do in a session meeting, we may grapple, uh, you know, have a disagreement, whatever it is. When we walk out of that room... Um, what actually happens is better because someone else checked me or I checked someone else. And that's the plurality of men. That's how fallible men can lead the church and God can use fallible men to lead the church because we're all pointing to God's standard and hopefully not all suffering from the same exact limitations. Um, All right, so let me rest here for just a second. We're almost out of time. Let me rest here for just a second. Does anybody have any questions on what I just said. Um, 
Let me give you an example. Um, COVID, right? We had unprecedented situation here in our, in the world, right? And uh, the church, you, you, some of you may, would have liked um, me or Jim or Neil or Kyle or any of the pastors <clears throat> to tell you um, what you should do or to mandate what the church collective was going to do. Um, and there's a fine line in terms of have a vaccine, not have a vaccine. Uh, everybody wear masks. This was one of the most difficult situations in a church because you've got some who would argue that the, out of the love and the championing of life, we should, and because of this thing called asymptomatic spread, that we should all mask, wear masks because that's the best way to champion life. And many churches took that position. Uh, we didn't because we don't think it's our, it's our job as elders to, hold, to, to set up logistics and all kinds of things in the life of the church, but to help to feed people uh, the Word of God uh, in our worship services. Um, our job is not to, no matter how much we've researched, no matter how much we've studied, no matter what our vocation is, our job is not to make people's health care decisions for them. Um, and many, 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 in fact, I don't know, honestly, of a church, um, another church, I don't know of another church, uh, certainly in Greensboro, uh, outside of Greensboro I do, but not in Greensboro, that... Um, worked so hard, and I think, I believe it was the right thing to do, worked so hard to worship God and stay out of people's business um, regarding things that aren't declarative of God's Word. Um, that's an example. Um, there's many others. Uh, and there's times when, you know, I have, I have ex- experiences, I have expertise, I have a job in the world, I'm not a full-time elder, there's things I know about that you guys don't know about. There's things that you are, have, a, have special knowledge in that other people don't. Now, I'm not saying as an elder in the church, you can't share you know, your expertise and encourage one another, right? Somebody's going to come to you, but it will, it's often. And if it's a little bit gray, I'll say, okay, I have an opinion on this. This is not, as an elder in the church, uh, this is not right and wrong. This is just through my study of this topic, this is what I think. Okay, that's not, but this is just my opinion. It has nothing to do, and, and you have to be, you, have, you say that out loud so that people understand, but you have to think about that in your heart. Um, you have, if you're, if you're binding someone's conscience, you better be read, you better make sure that what you're doing is declarative from God. You're God's mouthpiece in that moment. Um, so be careful with that power. Um, now, oftentimes legalism is, is, is spoken of as... Um, the practical outworkings of the principles of God's law in your everyday life. Um, you, as men of, as men of the church, you should be on your knees before God, uh, seeking clarity on what it means to keep the Lord's day holy. You should be seeking the Lord's guidance in your own heart uh, on what it means to, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, to not steal, to not have a murderous heart, uh, to not commit adultery in your actions or your thoughts or your eye movements or your flirtings or your conversations, all those things. You should be 
on your knees before God, seeking the right path. And the Holy Spirit, God promises, will convict you and show you some direction to go. But the particular outworkings and applications of that grappling with God on your knees, wanting your convictions on every little practical outworking of that to be everybody else's convictions is where you cross the line from wisdom and on your, on your knees before God into inappropriately binding conscience. Now, I was, I was purposely vague because <clears throat> that's not easy to understand, but you need to be aware of it. Um, and it, it often works itself out mostly in exactly what you do when you go home on Sunday after church. Because there's a lot of people that will want to, you to tell them what to do. Exactly. <laughs> to keep the Lord's Day. Um, and, you know, Christ says you should delight in the Sabbath. And we'll talk about it more. Um, we'll talk about that more in the worship section. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, we're going to talk more. So there's a there's a out of time today, but we're going to talk. It was technically under this section, but um, under worship uh, in a couple of weeks, worship and discipleship, we'll hit a little bit more. I mean, the 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 on on the, on the Lord's Day, uh, the basic thing is, I mean, we believe that worship is central, and we have morning worship and evening worship. Um, and we, as a leader in the church, we're going to encourage one another to be a part of the worship services when we have them. Now, uh, it's also, as a leader in the church, it's important to, and this is in the paper, I definitely read the Lord's Day paper, and we can, and has any, have everybody read that already? So I think you should, you should see from the spirit of that paper that um, we want to be about worship, and we want to be serious about God's God's law, but we're not, we don't require, we don't, we're not going to, you know, discipline someone for not coming to, to evening worship. Now, if someone, if a member of the church just decided they weren't going to come to worship ever again, then we would have, we would start to meet with them and understand what's going on, because that's indicative of some larger heart issue. Um, but being here on Sunday morning and certain Sunday evening, that's certainly what we expect. Um, but that's what we expect of ourselves, but I'm not here every Sunday evening, and if it's not, if, if we're providentially hindered um, for a numerous number, you know, many different reasons, uh, worship and rest does not always mean being here every time the church door is open. And in fact, as an elder in the church, you, you may feel like, if you become an elder in the church, you may feel like you're required to be here every time the church door opens, and that's not true either. Um, you've got to We've got, uh, we'll talk about it when we talk about the elders in the session, we've got a set of commitments, and one of those commitments is getting your priorities right. 
Um, and if, you're, if your relationship with God is not good and your relationship with your family and your work requirements are suffering, then you're going to be a horrible leader in the church. Um, so we hold each other to account. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in terms of the context of the officers of the church. We hold each other to account uh, on keeping those priorities uh, straight. So good question. Real, as we wrap up here or over time, um, Christian liberty, um, we talked about that. Don't try to make your convictions everyone else's. Um, but as an elder in the church, uh, it's, uh, there takes some wisdom, and there's lots to think about there. Don't be a slave to others' consciences. If somebody is convicted about something, that doesn't mean, in terms of a practical application, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to convict you in the same way. And then finally, uh, Romans 14, we could read it. Don't be a stumbling block. There's times when exercise of Christian liberty, full right to do it, could cause harm to someone else. Um, and the scriptures are very clear. Um, don't do something that you have a right to do that for whatever reason, makes sense or not, hurts somebody else uh, or makes them distracted. If somebody, if, if you're in worship and um, uh, there's many examples I could have, but don't be a stumbling block. Um, and then finally, Calvin's principles of Christian freedom. Freedom from bondage to the law. We think about liberty and Christian freedom. Freedom to obey without constraint, without penalty. That's what I mentioned earlier. Um, the most important thing we have is we have freedom to obey God imperfectly. We can mess it up, and it's, and it's not damning if we don't, because Christ. Um, freedom for the conscience, that's liberty of conscience. Um, freedom, never an excuse for self-gratification. Liberty not, is not license. And then uh, always be conscience, conscious of the weaker brother. Um, okay, um, any other... Dan, I didn't answer your question, but I will get there more as we go forward. Um, and there's no, there's habits of our church and there's things that we do. Um, there's not really general practices of the ARP. So, but we'll talk about things more specifically. Any other questions before we close in prayer? All right, guys, thank you for your attention. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your law. It is you tell us in your word that your precepts are good and right and perfect. And we pray that you would give us hearts, uh, men uh, with hearts for God, with hearts uh, that bring us to our knees, seeking to please you uh, and taking serious uh, the law of God that you have put upon us. Uh, but help us to see it as a delight. See every precept, every law as a rail uh, that guides us on a path to life and help us to tear down as we have the strongholds of evil in our own hearts to press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.